Saint, don't give up. Watching the 2008 Olympics in Beijing was the stuff of legend. Michael Phelps was raking in gold medals faster than Chick-fil-A serves customers. But after already hauling in six gold medals, the dude was tired. After the semis and the 100-meter butterfly, he told his coach, Coach, I am spent. His coach, Bob Bowman, raised his eyebrows and looked at him and said, Tough. You've got a couple races yet to go. You can suck it up. Well, the 100-meter butterfly in an Olympic-sized pool is once down and once back. It's a short race. It's a sprint. And the favorite was a Serbian, Miljorad Kavic. And he, at the start of the race, went out, and he was well ahead. He was smoking Michael Phelps. At the turn, he was a half-body length ahead of Michael Phelps. Half second, which doesn't seem like a lot, but a half body length in a sprint in a pool is insurmountable. Three quarters of the way at the 75 meter mark, halfway through the last lap, Michael Phelps had closed to about a head and shoulder length. But still you go, there's no way. There's no possible way until the end. And at the end... Milorad Kavic was just far enough away that he couldn't take an extra stroke and he glided in. Michael Phelps realized, I got nothing. I have to take that extra stroke, which swimming coaches say, don't do that. You know, just kick and go. Well, he took an extra stroke and that much, one one hundredth of a second. The photos are amazing. Go on YouTube, watch the race. It'll blow your mind if you don't remember it, if you didn't see it. Michael Phelps comes down with his hands on the pad while Kavich is still gliding. And he won the race. Seventh gold medal. Next day, he won his eighth. Now, I look around here, and I don't see any Olympians but I know the faces that are here. And I know most have known times where you were spent in what you were doing. You go, I've got no more. I want to quit. And some of us are facing another race and another challenge. And you go, I don't, I don't think I can do this. Or maybe you're in the middle of the race and Kavich has a half body lead on you. Your goggles are filled with water and your lungs are crying for oxygen. Your heart is pounding and you want to give up. Why bother? I can't catch him. Your prayers are unanswered. Your dreams dissolve like the morning mist as day turns into day, turns into day. Relationships are strained. Your sin is entangling your feet. And the reality of heaven seems to have no impact on us here and now. God knows that we will face such days. Sometimes it's days upon days. And he provides for us anchor points for our soul. 
within the midst of his word, truths and exhortations to help us hold fast when the storms hammer us. And we just don't want to persevere. We just want to quit. Today, I want us to strengthen our souls in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. This isn't merely an encouragement for us to endure, but it's an encouragement for us to do and endure. Keep doing. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Father God, oh, may your truth be glorified here in this place. May the saints be strengthened in the God that you are through the power of the Holy Spirit by the finished work of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Galatians. All right, quick summation, since I'm not preaching through this. Galatians is perhaps Paul's most harsh and stark letter. He has a real concern for them, and he speaks in a way that may actually seem disrespectful uh, to some. But the saints were being led astray to believe that deeds were required for justification. To make them right before God, they had to do. Well, he called them to know that there is no righteousness apart from Christ's finished work alone. He called them now to live in the freedom of the gospel, a freedom that allows us to follow Christ in obedience, a freedom that allows us to turn from our sin. But in this letter also, he calls them to reconcile their personal differences because it was a church churches of Jews and Gentiles. And there was schism and there was conflict. As is typical in Paul's letters, as Jeremy has just pointed out, the first half of the letter is foundational, fundamental, doctrinal. He's building an argument on the truth of God and his word to us. And then he gets into the application. And so he does here. The last two chapters of Paul's letter to the Galatians really fleshes out in their daily lives how the Jews and the Gentiles are to live as believers with one another. Even in these chapters, you see Paul kind of hinting at the problems that they were having. In chapter 5, verses 13 through 15, he encourages them, encourages them to love and not to bite one another. At the end of that same chapter, he encourages them not to provoke one another. At the start of chapter 6, he encourages them to restore a brother caught in transgression. Okay, you're, you're, you're going to sin against each other. You're, you're going to. To restore one another in gentleness. Chapter 6, verse 2, he exhorts them to bear one another's burdens. Chapter 6, verse 6, to share with our teachers. And then we get to 9 and 10, and he calls them to do good to everyone. And so that's where we're going to anchor today, primarily on 6, 9, and 6, 10. 
But I'm going to read here chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household faith. Let us keep on doing good. He starts verse 9, and let us not grow weary. The assumption is that based on everything I have just told you, that you're going to be doing this. And not to grow weary in the doing good. And he even reemphasizes the command in chapter 10. So then let us do good to one another. To whom are we to do the good? First of all, to everyone. Verse 10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone. And he means everyone. Because then he specifies it and draws it even down tighter, especially those who are of the household of faith. Now, what this gets into is kind of the biblical idea of something called proximity. I am responsible for those who are near to me. I am responsible for those who are near to me. We know the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so, being little Pharisees like we are, we go, well, who's our neighbor? Well, that's the question that Jesus was asked that drove into the parable of the Good Samaritan. You can't love everyone. There's billions of people on the planet. God can do that. He's omnipresent and omnipotent. We can't. We're limited and finite. And God gets that. You can't love everyone. Jesus even said, the poor you will have with you always. Paul focuses down in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, that if you don't love those, if you do not care for those who are of your own household, you are worse than an infidel, you have denied the faith. Who do you have responsibility to? Your family. But you also have a responsibility to those who are near you both nearest to you physically and nearest to you in relationship and nearest to you as you encounter people in the comings and goings. Sometimes you're not going to know that person. Sometimes it's not going to be expected. It is not uncommon for you throughout the day to have God-ordained appointments. Hebrews 13, 2 says, 
some of you, by entertaining strangers, have really entertained angels unaware. Okay? God sets up appointments for you that you did not expect. So you have to be aware of that in your comings and goings. Who are you supposed to do good to? It may be somebody you don't know. But then there are those people who are near you. Who is nearest to me? That would be my wife. Then who? My kids. I have a responsibility to my kids. Kids, you got a responsibility to your parents. Who else do I who else is near to me? My neighbor, my literal neighbor, the dude who lives right next door on both sides across the street. I have a responsibility, a God-given responsibility. Do good to those who are near you. My coworkers, people I see every day at work. But note the special emphasis to those who are of the household of faith, to those in your church. We, brothers and sisters, have a unique responsibility to one another, to love one another and to do good to one another. This implies that I know you. This implies that I know your needs. I know your burdens. I know your sorrows. I know your joys. I can't help you if I don't know these things. But then after that, it extends out in wider circles within the church. We have responsibility to Josh and Faith Longoria. We have a responsibility to David and Christy Flink to pray for them, to know what their needs are, that we might pray for them. Kind of as Paul mentioned in that first letter to Corinthians that I read at the start of the service, that we would pray for him and pray for them. But I'm sure each one of you knows other saints within this community, within Wichita Falls, Burke Burnett area. We have a responsibility to them as well in ever-growing circles. And eventually, again, I can't deal with everybody. God knows that. And so proximity is important. When are you supposed to do good? What does Paul say in verse 10? As you have opportunity. Now, a lot of times like, okay, just like the guy who asks, well, who's my neighbor? When we ask, okay, what, what does it mean when I have opportunity? Oftentimes we ask those things because we're looking for an out. Oh, great. Okay, I don't have that opportunity because uh, I didn't see it. And we, we look for an excuse to not do that. But really we need to be open to what God is ex exhorting us to. God will provide you opportunities. God will provide you unexpected opportunities, as I've already alluded to. And we should expect the unexpected. But we should also, well, we should look for these opportunities eagerly and expectantly. But that's not my personality. If I've got a vector, that's where I want to go. And anything that interrupts that vector is unpleasant to me. I don't like to be that way, but that's how I am. But God is going to ordain those kinds of appointments for me that are going to interrupt my timing. 
I need to be ready for them and willing. I, I have to let God infringe on my plans. So there's going to be those unexpected opportunities, but God also expects you to make opportunities. In Galatians chapter 2, in verse 10, the Jerusalem council came back to Paul and told them, chapter 2, verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Well, to remember the poor, I have to be consciously aware of the poor. I have to make plan and purpose to serve and deal with the poor. Okay? So I have to intend. I have to make opportunities to do good. You go, how? Okay, we're we're loopholes, looking for loopholes. Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it is a really uncomfortable book. They have, they open their home to the neighborhood every Wednesday night for a meal. Every Wednesday night. Come on in. Who? Everyone. Every one of their neighbors. They intentionally want to do good to their neighbors. That is one way. I'm not exhorting you to do that, but that is, that is, how extreme you can be. The Pregnancy Care Center has a desperate need for people who will serve there, both men and women. Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Wichita Falls. I mean, the the opportunities truly are legion. Am I going to make opportunities? But then we're going to ask ourselves, "Uh, but what is good? And... Paul would look at you and go, have you not listened to what I wrote in the previous five chapters? He's exhorting us to do these things. We are believers. We know the good we ought to do. Good is that which accords with God and his word. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to care for their physical well-being. We are to care about their spiritual well-being. Chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We are to be those who are showering the fruit of the Spirit, Christ in our lives, upon those who are in proximity to us. And that may include confronting people. Chapter 6 and verse 1. This is the doing of good that Paul expects. But let's back up now and anchor in chapter 6 and verse 9. Because Paul says, do not grow weary in well-doing. Becoming weary in what God has called us to do is a real threat. Entropy, physical entropy is a real thing. That's why that machine is outside because entropy is having its way with our building. And so they are painting along the roof and trying to keep it all together. Well, spiritual entropy is a real thing also. Unless I am intentional in my life, 
sin is going to creep in and rot the corners of my life just like rain and wind decay the roof of this building. God knows that this is going to happen. It is a fallen and broken world. This is why Jesus in Luke 18, verse 1, tells them a parable. Luke, Luke writes, He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Because you're gonna lose heart. Think of Christ in the garden with the disciples. Hey, pray that you not fall into temptation. He knows they were spent. He knows they were tired. Stay awake with me during this hour, please. But this exhortation that Paul gives to the Galatians here is exactly the same. Well, at least the do not grow weary in doing good is the exact same exhortation he gives to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 3.13. Do not grow weary in doing good. It is an issue, saint, of body and mind and spirit. I say I can't. I go, I can't take another step. That is my mind saying I can't do it. But the spirit says you can. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 says to come to him. You who are weary and heavy laden and he will give you rest. He calls his disciples to come to him for power, empowerment. In John 15, 5, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus calls them to come to him for endurance. This is what Paul exhorts in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can now do all things. I can endure all things. That's what he's talking about, enduring all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Paul exhorts the Galatian church, don't grow weary in doing good. It's not so much the idea of a physical fatigue, but of mental. Don't give up. We will reap if we do not give up. Do not grow Weary, don't quit. Don't give up. He knows, Christ knows the weariness and seeming futility that oftentimes comes with parenting. Do good. He knows the chill of having affections spurned by ones who are dear to you. Do good. He knows the loneliness that you will feel as you do good. He knows that you may be suffering physical pain and agony. I think of David Everett as oftentimes he is, he's not home with a migraine this week, but he was recently. I mean, he is beset by those. And yet, even in his bed, he can do good. He can pray for others. 
He can shoot texts of encouragement even in his pain and suffering. Jesus knows mockery and scorn. He knows what it is to be mocked and scorned for loving the Father and following in obedience, and still we are exhorted to do good. But it's not just that push of exhortation. Hey, come on, keep on, keep on. Yeah, like a coach. There's a reward. Paul makes plain to us that there is a reward for doing this. For in due season, you will reap if you do not give up. What's that going to be? I don't know. I have no idea. What will be the effect of this sermon preached? I don't know. But I'm called to preach. What will be the outcome of a rebuke or corporal punishment administered in love? I don't know. What will come from your repeated grace and forgiveness to one who has ill-treated you? Can any good come from a toilet cleaned? Will my helping the bum on the street with a meal really do him any good? What fruit really comes from sin resisted? By closing the laptop. By not exploding at the guy who cuts me off. But I do know it will come. How can I say that? Because God says that. He says you will reap if you do not lose heart. Christ held that out to his disciples. In Matthew 25, 21, in the parable of the talents, he says, you guys should look forward to hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. That will come at some point future. And with that, oh, by the way, here's greater responsibility. You who are in charge of five cities, here are five more. And he says, enter into the joy of your master. You will reap if you do not lose heart. St. Christ had that hope too. Hebrews chapter 12 Verse one says, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, scorning its shame. For the joy that was set before him. Jesus didn't do it just for altruistic reasons. Like, oh, okay, you know, this is good, the right thing, I know I'm gonna suffer. There was a reward, a great reward for God the Son, the exaltation of names above any name. A name. And so there will be a reward. When's it going to be? I don't know that either. It says in due time. Well, what's that? That's God's timing. When did Christ come? Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time. At just the right time. When is he coming again? At just the right time. Ephesians 1.10. When will be our reward? When will be the reaping? I don't know. 
but it will be in God's good and perfect timing. Will it be under the sun? Maybe. It may be still here. You may see benefit and blessing for following after him even now. You may not. And he says, still, do not grow weary of doing good. You will reap in due time if you do not lose heart. Saint, this calls for faith. This is faith right here. We want an if A, then B, woohoo, works every time. If I do A, then God does this. That is not God's equation. I don't even want to see God's equation. And his equation for me is going to be different than his equation for you. When is due time for me versus you? I don't know. I want to put God in a box. But I want to put God in my box. I can't put God in a box. I have to go with what he tells us. God has put himself in a box. Here is God's box. His revealed word to us is God revealing himself to us. He has told us who he is so we can know some of the how and some of the what that he will do. As we know the word of God, we know the mind of God. So I may not know the when and I may not know the what, but I do know the reaping will be glorious because he has said so. I has not seen nor ear heard what God has in store for those who love him. And so we must persevere. Don't give up if we do not give up. In due time, we must not give up. There's no quit. I don't know how long. He does. He calls us to keep on even if nothing's happening. Don't lose heart. If we do not lose heart, think of the POWs in Vietnam. Okay, day after day, after seven years, some of them spent. I can't lose heart. I can't give up. I give up, I die. I have no hope. How do you run a marathon? 26 point what? Four miles? 26 point one point two. One step at a time. You're not going to stretch all the way across that distance. One step at a time. Consider the saints of old. Abraham, 75 years old when he received the promise of a son. 25 years the guy had to wait. Moses, 40 when he left Egypt. Shepherding sheep, stupid, stinky sheep, for 40 years until he was 80. And then God called him to do his work. David, anointed king as a boy. There's already a king, but I'm anointed the king. Well, okay, I'll just hang out and be chased by the king and have my life threatened by the king, have to seek refuge amongst my enemies. Great. 
Oh, and then he does get the kingdom, but it's only for Judah. And for seven years, he's the king of Judah alone before he becomes the full-blown king of Israel. Elijah, the prophet to Israel. No good kings while Elijah was prophet. What a hopeless job. Jeremiah, the prophet of woe, the prophet of exile. Daniel, taken into exile as a lad, never to see his homeland again, lived a life of consistent and constant persecution. I'm going to read to you from Hebrews chapter 11, and I've kind of moshed the verses together. So I'm going to go from 35 to 38 to 13 to 16, and then back to 39 and 40. But listen up. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people speak thus, make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return to it. But but as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And how many have died for the cause since then? How many have done things for the cause, not died, and felt like, ah, it's hopeless? Stephen, man, he's snuffed out before the church even starts. During the Reformation, Jan Hus and William Tyndale both died at the stake at the hands of the Catholic Church. Oh, what good was my life? We know the story of Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCulley, Pete Fleming. They died out on the riverbed in, in South America. What a waste. What about today in Afghanistan and China and Russia and Iran? Saint, let us take heart from such as these. Let us take heart and be encouraged. As they have done in Christ, we can do in Christ if we do not grow weary and give up hope. Our God is the same God who empowered Tyndale and Hus not to grow weary. Now, Understand this, God does not expect you to do this on your own. He's writing to churches. He tells them to bear one another's burdens. We are to encourage one another to not give up, to keep on keeping on. So where do you find yourself growing weary in doing good? Do you feel like you're evangelizing brick walls? As the gospel comes out of your mouth, it just sounds like goo. Continue. Parenting. 
continue to discipline. You feel like you're speaking to a culture that's racing toward hell and you're not seeing any change on the speedometer. Continue to speak into the culture. You feel like maybe you're trying to whip stitch a marriage together that's unraveling around you. Continue to do good. Pouring out kindness and receiving hostility. Continue to do good. Now, Saint, again, I promise you nothing, but God promises you everything. That is the difference between the promise of man versus the promise of God. God promises that you will reap in your well-doing if you do not lose heart. No eye has seen, nor ear heard. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. Jesus says, even as you did it to the least of these, even as you give a cup of cold water, you never see this guy again. You've done it unto me. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The assurance of what? Of reaping. The conviction of what? Of all that we do not see, but we know from what has gone before. Some of you think you can't handle another race. Some of you think you can't handle another trial. Some of you got goggles full of water. You don't even want to get into the pool again. Some of you may have gotten into the pool. You're in the middle of the race, but the dude's a half a body length ahead of you. And Satan whispers in your ear and every muscle in your body cries, you don't have to do this. Give up. Here's the deal. You don't know the outcome, but you do know who waits at the finish line. And his promises and his scars are real. One more stroke and then another. Saints, anchor yourselves in the truth of God's word. We're almost home. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. Let's pray. Father, what kindness to us that you know we are but dust. I feel like Peter just betraying you to your face and you are kind and you are merciful and you empower us and you strengthen us and you come alongside and you encourage us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. Oh God, thank you. Thank you for these brothers and sisters here. Thank you for your church that we might exhort and encourage one another in this race. Oh, that we would not grow weary in doing good for in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. All praise to you in Jesus' name, amen.